The scripture that our brother Sam will be preaching on this morning will come from Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through, um, and I'll read a couple other verses in 20 to 21 as well. So if you would turn to page 2 or 3 in the Pew Bibles in front of you, and has been our practice here at Redeemer, if you would please stand out of honor of reading of God's word. Genesis 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed leaves, fig leaves, together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, Well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then verses 20 and 22. The man said, his wife named Eve, because the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Uh, my name is Sam Kennedy. As I was introduced earlier, I'm the uh, campus minister for RUF at UNC Wilmington. I'm Really glad to be here this morning. I have some friends from college, some old college buddies that live up here in Raleigh, and they came out to see my sister and brother here live in Raleigh, and my family's able to be here with us. We've kind of got the whole third row locked down. So um, it's really a pleasure to be here. I'm grateful for this church. Uh, when I was called on to staff with RUF um, about a year ago, uh, I started in June 1st uh, working at UNC Wilmington. Uh, Dan Seal, y'all's pastor, was instrumental in helping me navigate the interview process and, and everything. And, and basically, when I came on the staff, he said, listen, just think of me as your dad. Like, if you have any questions, if you feel you know, like there's a lot of pressure to, to do something, just say, I have to ask my dad. And then ask me, and I'll try to like help you sort it out. So you all know him, and you appreciate him, but I want you to know from me and from the other campus ministers and just guys in the Presbytery, 
Dan is like our Presbytery dad. And he is, it, he, it just brings a lot of comfort and joy uh, and security <laughs> to know that he's looking out for us and watching over us. And so you all get the benefit of that all the time. But uh, I'm grateful that he would share his pulpit uh, while he's away and I'd get to be here. And also just grateful to y'all as a church for the way that you faithfully support RUF at UNC Wilmington uh, financially through your prayers. I mean, your church is uh, extremely generous to us and uh, helps me do this work and support my family. And uh, I just am supremely grateful to y'all. I've gotten to meet some of uh, the people here at the church and it's been really nice. A couple parents of some of my students at UNCW, but uh, if we haven't gotten to meet yet, I hope maybe we can connect in the the lobby afterwards. If you want to know more about what we're doing at UNCW, uh, if you want to know how you can pray for us or uh, want to get connected in some way, I'd be happy uh, to meet with you. I'd love to, to connect with you. One of the things that we've been doing this semester in RUF uh, in our large group meetings, which happen every Tuesday night in a uh, big lecture hall on the UNCW campus, uh, we've been going through uh, a survey of kind of all of redemptive history. Uh, looking at the Bible, looking at the story of God's plan of redemption and rescue for his people, starting in Genesis and then going all the way through to the maps at the very end of the book. Just just sweep through the entire Bible. And one of the ways that we're breaking it up to try and teach the story of redemption to our students so that they can understand it, so they can articulate it, and then teach it and proclaim it to others is by looking at the covenants that God makes with his people. One of the things that we've been saying in the Bible, when God makes a covenant, it's, it's like a DTR. And I don't know if, you know if you're familiar with that terminology, but for uh, some of the millennials, some of the youths, you may know this. Uh, a DTR is when a couple defines their relationship. So it's when a couple is kind of getting together and hanging out together, and you start to ask the question, what really are we? Are we friends? Are we more than friends? Are we potentially going to be something more significant? And so what the couple will do, if they're wise, is that they will sit down and verbally define the relationship. They will have a DTR conversation, and what that does is allows both parties in the relationship to understand what this thing is and what their relationship is to each other. What are the obligations that each side is expecting and um, what is the kind of boundary that is going to be around this relationship? How permanent is it? What, What exactly are we getting together for? And so what God does in the Bible is when he reveals his purposes to his people, he does it through a DTR, through, through defining the relationship in a covenant. And he binds himself to his people through covenant promises. And in Genesis 1 through the beginning of chapter 3, God lays out a covenant for Adam and Eve. Some call it the covenant of life, some call it the covenant of works. But basically he defined the relationship as one of uh, dependent authority. So that man has authority over creation as the chief among of all creatures. But man is supposed to exercise that authority under God's authority. And so God placed a tree in the garden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the point 
of that tree was not that man didn't know good and evil before then, but it was about not so much the um, understanding of good and evil, but the, uh, the ability to and the authority to determine what is good and what is evil. So what God says is, I want you to stay away from that tree, like Sinclair Ferguson says in, in the front of our bulletin here, just because I said so. Not on your own authority, not because it seems good or seems bad to you, but I want you to trust my word and live under the authority of my word and just obey me. Do it because I said so, please. And as we know, uh, Adam and Eve broke that covenant. Uh, They ate from the fruit of the tree. And so they were plunged into uh, the consequence of, of sin and darkness and separation from God. And that's where our passage this morning uh, picks up. Uh, humanity is in darkness. Humanity is, is stuck. Humanity is ashamed and hiding. And the question that we should be asking as we approach this passage is what hope is there? <laughs> what hope is there for a people who are stuck in darkness? And and what I hope we will see this morning, the hope that this passage uh, puts forward to us, is that no matter what darkness you're in, (laughs) whether it's the darkness of your own sin, whether it's the darkness of disappointment with your circumstances, the darkness and the the feeling of just being stuck in in a job or a, a relationship or some kind of struggle that you just do not know how to get your way out of. That God is holding out hope and that hope is that he would provide a rescue. And we see the pattern of this rescue laid out in this this kind of primal, very simple way in Genesis chapter 3. And I, I would almost like for you to imagine this little proclamation of the gospel, this little proclamation of the rescue to come that we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, as the first ripple from a rock that is thrown into the water. And that first ripple that gets made is just a tiny little circle. And then it expands and expands and expands. And this promise of rescue is, is just a little ripple right now. But through the course of salvation history, it will expand and expand and develop and develop all the way to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ when He conquers sin and death once and for all and everything bad finally comes untrue. So, shall we? uh, Let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we come to this passage here in your word in Genesis chapter 3. And we ask that you would help us to see ourselves and to see you as you really are. To see Christ as he has held out to us and to grab hold of him. Lord, we know that the grass withers, the flower fades but your word stands forever. Would you speak it to us this morning and apply it to our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. 
Amen. Uh, You may want to have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 3, which I believe is on page 3 and 4 of your pew Bibles. Just, and this is what I say to the students in RUF, so so that you can see that what I'm going to say actually does come from the Bible. (laughs) That I didn't just make it up or pull it out of thin air, but that actually you can see in context that the Bible really does say and promise these wonderful things. I don't know if I had mentioned before, I have uh, one wife, two children. Uh, my one wife is Shauna, and she's right there in the front. My, my son, uh, who is eight years old, is named Gus, and he's right there next to her. And then we have a five-year-old daughter named Hattie, who's back in children's church right now, just having a blast and making friends. Uh, my son is in basketball right now, which is really fun for him, but really boring for my daughter, because she has nothing to do. And so a couple weeks ago... Uh, Gus was going to a basketball game, and my daughter said something that she has never said before in the history of me knowing her, which is all of her life. She said, I think I just want to stay home and hang out with dad. And my wife and I looked at each other, and we were like, hallelujah, this is amazing. Because I'd really, over the last year, I've been wanting more time to just spend with my daughter, because it's really natural for me to just hang out with my son and do guy stuff, you know. So my daughter wants to stay home with me, and uh, as they're leaving, she says, Dad, let's play hide-and-seek. And And I thought, great, that's an easy game. I'm really good at it, and you're not that great at hiding, so this is going to be pretty easy for me to win. So she says, great, close your eyes, sit in this chair, and count to 100. And I was like, 100? Okay. And so I sat, and I count to 100 because just... And parents of young kids, you know this, just getting to sit by yourself in the quiet for 100 seconds or however long you want to draw it out is wonderful. So I'm sitting there really taking my time and I'm counting and all of a sudden I go, okay, well, I'm done. And I'm walking around and I think, oh, maybe she's in the fridge. So I grab a snack from the fridge. Nope, not in the fridge. And I'm walking around the house. Maybe, you know, maybe she's Um, over here and I'm just walking around and uh, taking my time because, again, quiet house, so nice. And all of a sudden I hear from the ether this kind of muffled voice and it calls out to me and it says, look in the upstairs bathroom. And I thought, huh, three possibilities. One, could have been our cat. But I thought, not. Nah, he's not that helpful. <laughs> Two, it could have been the Lord, which, who knows. But I thought, you know what I think? I think that might be Hattie, <laughs> trying to sound like disguising her voice somehow. And so I, you know, stomp up the stairs really, really loudly, and I go, oh, I guess I'm going to look in the upstairs bathroom. <laughs> and then I reach in under the sink, and she goes, How'd you find me? (laughs) I go, well, you know, it was kind of easy. She called out to me because she wanted to be found. Uh, She's awful at hiding. I mean, she's really the worst at hide and seek because uh, she she just can't stand not being found. (laughs) And so she gets impatient and she cries out. In Genesis 3, we have a little bit of a different kind of hide and seek game. 
And the situation that humanity are in, um, they're desperately afraid of being found. In fact, they're doing everything they can to hide themselves with very little success. You see, in Genesis 2, God spoke to Adam and he said, on that day, you decide to decide for yourself what is right and wrong. When you cease to live by my word alone, you will surely die. There will be a consequence to your action. In Genesis 2, chapter 17. And the curse consequence of that action is now starting to spread its way through all of creation. And Adam and Eve immediately recognize what they have done in the fact that they understand that they're naked. And actually, this was one of the most awkward parts of reading this in front of a room full of um, college students, is that the sheer amount of times that the word naked is in this passage. Uh, And so Adam and Eve notice that they're exposed. They're exposed to the elements. They're exposed to each other. And the creation that God has proclaimed good, they look at and they say, this is actually not good. And so they cover themselves up. They kind of sew together some kind of inadequate covering with fig leaves. And then it says, as God comes to the garden to visit his people, they hide themselves, not just under the fig leaves, but kind of among the trees, which is just silly to think that you could hide from an all-seeing, all-knowing God, but they do. And the reason they hide, which perhaps you can relate to, is is the fact that when God comes, our God is what He is perfectly, all the time, 24-7, 365. So God is love, all the time, 100%, 24-7, 365 days of the year, eternity past to eternity future. But God is also... 100% holy, 100% just, 100% truthful. He dwells in unapproachable light. And in their darkness, Adam and Eve, like us, shrink back for fear of being exposed and seen for what they are, even that's what they need. (laughs) They need to be seen. They need to be found out. And so... The hope that this passage holds out for us uh, is not that we would be able to uh, rescue ourselves, but that we would find hope by trusting in the rescue that God promises to provide. So I just want to notice for a second as we go through this passage, first, how rescue comes, Next, how rescue is provided. And third, how rescue is received. So first, we see that rescue comes through God's initiative. We've already said that Adam and Eve are stuck and hiding, right? Under the darkness of the covenant curse of having broken the first covenant that God made. And so when God comes onto the scene, the scripture says they heard the Lord walking in the cool of the day, which is a kind of relaxed picture. Uh, There's another translation that is possible. You might see in a footnote that that word cool 
is also the Hebrew word ruah, which means wind. So it could be that God is walking in the wind. Also, uh, recently, I was just reading this in a Hebrew textbook, which you do when you're in seminary, read Hebrew textbooks. Uh, that that word yom, the Hebrew word day, may also be the same word that, that, that also could mean storm. So another possibility is not that God is just kind of casually walking through in the cool of you know, the dewy morning, but actually that God is coming in the wind of a storm. Which would explain a little bit why Adam and Eve might be hiding. But however you take this, their response is instructive. God comes, and when God comes on the scene, they hide. And so, it's, the situation is a little bit like a middle school dance. And if you've ever been to a middle school dance, or been around a middle school dance, or even been, uh, my friend went to a father-daughter dance last week uh, at, in his neighborhood, and he said it was the exact same. What happens is, you have two parties glued to the walls. And the question is, who's going to take the first step? Like, who's going to move first? Who's going to be the first one to break the ice? That's the situation that we're in here in Genesis chapter 3. And the good news is that the rescue comes through God breaking the ice. God makes the first move. God takes the first step. And how he enters in is instructive for us. He enters in asking questions. Sometimes I'll come home uh, and there'll be some kind of skirmish or disagreement in our household. Rare, but it happens sometimes. Perhaps that happens in, in your homes also. Uh, so I'll come home and Shauna will tell me what happened. So she'll say, you know, Gus did this to Hattie or Hattie did this to Gus and there was all this chaos and here's the situation. And as a good father um, or an aspiring good father, uh, what I know that I'm supposed to do is to walk in and not immediately make assertions. <laughs> you did this! You did this! But instead to walk in and draw the children out and ask questions. So to walk in and to say, what happened today? Now, I'm not asking because I don't know. I already know what happened. But I'm asking because they need to know what happened. They need to articulate what happened. They need to talk about it and process it. So we have an all-knowing God coming in to a people who have severely, supremely messed things up, and he's saying, Adam, where are you? God knows where he is. God sees through the fig leaves. He sees through the trees. He made them. But he's calling out and he's saying, where are you? Not because God doesn't know, because Adam doesn't know where he is. He calls to Eve and he said, what did you do? Why? Not because God doesn't know. Because Eve needs to know and own and recognize what she did. So God comes as a father, asking questions, engaging in relationship with the people who are hiding from him. But he doesn't just come asking questions, he also comes making promises. And I, and I think this is beautiful. God comes and he speaks to his people, he takes the initiative, and he defines reality for them. He, he promises consequences to their actions. Uh, in every covenant that's made in the Bible, there are 
blessings and curses attached to it. In fact, when I was talking about covenants with our students, we said it's, just a, it's a relationship with consequences. It's a relationship with teeth attached. So there are blessing consequences if you obey the terms of this uh, DTR, of this covenant, and there's curse consequences, bad consequences, if you break the terms of the covenant. And so God is coming, and like a good parent, he's laying out, proclaiming, and promising consequences for their actions. And I think it is important, by the way, that I had a professor say this once. Um, The way God deals with his children is he does not punish his children. God disciplines his children. Punishment is reserved for unbelievers. Discipline is reserved for God's children. So God comes, and it's, it's, it's amazing how God comes and he curses the serpent He says to Adam, the ground is now going to be cursed because of your actions, but he doesn't actually curse Adam and Eve. He delivers consequences to Adam and Eve because he's a father who disciplines the children that he loves. And so he proclaims these um, consequences. Now, for us, (laughs) as a people who sometimes when we think about... um, our own situation, our own sin, our own kind of darkness, our own struggle, we often wonder uh, how to make the first move. I I can't tell you how many times I'm I'm sitting with students and students will kind of come to the RUF meeting because they understand that that's a place where the Bible's being taught, where they can hear about Christianity, like hear, hear the real deal about it, like the uncut, unfiltered, real deal of what Christianity is, like you teach through the whole Bible, and so they come and they'll have a conversation with me and they'll say, well, I'm, I'm seeking God. Or, I'm just searching for God. Or, I, I'm kind of seeking out after truth. I'm looking for something. And the good news of this passage, the good news of the entire Bible, is that the moment we have the inclination to seek after God, it is proof that we have been sought out. That even your own dissatisfaction, even your own feeling of of stuckness is evidence of God's grace at work in your life. So that before you decide to call out to God, before you decide to seek after God, He grabs a hold of you and seeks out. Uh, for you. God always breaks the ice. God always takes the initiative. God always makes the first move, and that is good news to a people who feel stuck and don't know where to start. God has already started for you. So we see that rescue comes through God's initiative, but also we need to see in this passage that rescue is provided for by God. Rescue comes through God's provision, meaning God pays for it. You don't pay for it. Another way of saying that is the rescue, the salvation, the redemption that all of us need comes by grace. Now, grace, I like to say to our students, isn't just a lady's name. It's not just a description of some characteristic of a ballet dancer or something that moves uh, really elegantly and coordinatedly, right? Grace is a description of who God is. 
And it's not like a power or a force that he infuses you with. It's, it's a description of his attitude toward you. Grace is unearned favor. It's unmerited blessing. It's God's, it's God's way of pouring out goodness and mercy on unworthy recipients like you and like me. So we see that this rescue is provided for to a people totally impoverished, totally unable to provide for themselves. God provides something for them. And it, we see that this rescue comes freely, is received freely, but it's procured at a great price. It's free to us, but it's not freely bought. And we see that this grace costs something, both to our substitute rescuer and also to our substitute covering. You see the substitute rescuer there in um, verse 15. This is the passage that theologians have looked back on and they call it the first gospel, the proto-evangelion. The first proclamation of the gospel, that first little drop in the water that spreads and expands. And, And just see if you recognize Jesus in here. God promises, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent. Between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is a family feud, is what it is. He's saying there's a family of the serpent, a family of evil, this, this group of people, this kind of army of, of evil, <laughs> obeying the will of the serpent. And then there's the family of life, the family tree descending from Eve, that there'll be a family feud, that these two parties are going to fight it out. And then finally, at the culmination of this conflict, One of the offspring of Eve, one of the children that descend from Adam and Eve will deal a blow to the serpent while also being wounded himself. And if you look at the language, uh, your translation in the ESV might say bruise, but it's the same word just for wound. The seed will strike the serpent and it'll be a fatal blow. He'll hit him on the head. Um, And then the serpent will strike the seed. And he'll really be wounded. It'll be costly to him, but it won't be fatal. The fatal blow will be given to the forces of evil. Now, Christians have looked back at this passage and and they're saying, this is the cross. This is Jesus triumphing over the powers of death. So that he can proclaim, behold, I hold the keys of death and of Hades. I've come to set free those who are slaves to fear under the power of the evil one. I have come to purchase your rescue at the cost of my own life. So that you could be set free. So it's freely received by us. But it's bought at great cost to our substitute conqueror, our substitute rescuer, the serpent-crushing king, Jesus. We also see that this rescue comes at a great cost to a substitute coverer. God comes to Adam and Eve who have kind of made these really inadequate coverings for themselves. 
They're similar to some of the swimwear at Wrightsville Beach in the summer. Uh, does not provide adequate coverage. They come, God comes to Adam and Eve and says, the winters are cold here. The sun is hot. Fig leaves will not cut it. And so he fashions a covering for Adam and for Eve. It says, with the skin of animals in verse 21. So, freely received by Adam and Eve. Given at great cost to the two animals that had to die to provide the covering. Now, people have looked back at this little exchange and they said, that's maybe a picture of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Maybe that's a, a picture of the way that priests are clothed um, with robes to cover them when they come into God's presence in the Old Testament. But however you look at it, what it's saying here is that God is determined to cover our depravity with dignity. God looks at us in our shame, in our brokenness, um, in our fear, and He says, I will provide a covering for you. Better than anything that you could kind of try to gin up for yourself. So God provides a covering at great cost to the substitute. And we understand that the, the cost that our substitute is going to have to bear is death because of what God says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. He says, on that day that you eat it, the covenant consequence will be death. And so, Jesus Christ came under that curse, under that old covenant that we could not keep. And he fulfills the terms and the obligations of it. Christ came under the law, under that first covenant to say, the price that you could not pay, I will pay for you. I will die the death that you should die. And in fact, I will live the life of obedience that you should have lived. And I will give my record to you freely. I will exchange my perfect life for your broken life. And you will receive and rest in me. And in fact, I will give you robes of righteousness to wear. White robes without any spot or blemish. That's the promise that is held out for us. And the thing that we need to remember is that though it is freely given to us, this grace is not cheap. This grace comes at great cost to God. Great cost to our Savior. So, we receive it freely, but the way we receive it is instructive. We see in this passage that this rescue is received in a very specific way. It's received by believing and resting on the Word of God. Uh, which is another way of saying that it's received by faith. Now, it's pretty common, especially among some of the students I know, for faith to just be kind of equal to your feelings. And I've heard students say something like this, it doesn't matter what you have faith in, just whatever you believe, believe in it with what? All your heart. Just believe, really believe, like really have strong faith. And that's the important thing. Well, the Bible is really clear that it's not the strength of our faith, the strength of our convi conviction that rescues us. It's not the strength of your faith, 
It's the strength of the object of your faith. It's not the perfection of your faith that saves you. Believing with all your heart, really meaning it this time. It's not the perfection of your faith. It's actually the direction of your faith. Looking away from yourself toward the rescue that God provides. And we see Adam and Eve doing this in in a really small, micro, simple way, starting in verse 20. Adam and Eve are receiving and resting in the promise of God. They're exercising faith. How do we see them do that? First, we see them receive the covering that God provides. Receiving a new dignity to cover their shame. In order to uh, receive these animal skins, presumably they had to drop the fig leaves. Which may be embarrassing, which may be scary, which may be awkward, right? But God is saying you need to drop your efforts at covering yourself and beautifying yourself. I need to be the one that covers you. I need to be the one that makes you beautiful. I need to be the one that provides protection for you. So faith, although it is this inward and invisible attitude, faith actually works itself out in some pretty concrete and visible ways. There's a change in what you're uh, using to cover yourself with. There's a change in habits and attitudes. Uh, The confession says that faith is the alone instrument of justification. It's the, the sole instrument that connects us as sinful, needy people to God's rescue and redemption and healing. But even though faith, it, we are saved by faith alone, we are not saved by a faith that stays alone. Faith always reveals itself with these accompanying change of attitudes and behavior. And this, this first is a, a receiving what God has to give. I wonder for you, what, what, are your, uh, what are the fig leaves in your life? What are the things that you use to say, when I have this, I feel good about myself, I feel protected, other people see me as I want them to see me, I can kind of go out into the world and feel protected, feel beautiful, feel wanted. And I just wonder, does it provide adequate coverage? Does it last? Does it really work? When you fail it, does it forgive you? Have you received the covering, the dignity, the beauty that God wants to provide for you? Have you received a sense of of beauty to cover your shame that comes from the unchanging word of the authoritative, the good, the beautiful God of the universe. So Adam and Eve are receiving this rescue by believing in God's word, but also they're resting in this rescue. They're they're developing a new identity based on God's promises for them. And you see that in verse 20. The first thing that Adam does is he looks at Eve after God speaks, and he says, your name is Eve. Her name used to be woman, or the woman. 
And he names her. And naming is a, a significant thing in, in all throughout the Scripture. It, it's part of man's responsibility, right? To, to name the animals. To speak order and beauty and truth into a chaotic creation. It's a God-like thing that Adam gets to do. And he exercises this authority by naming his wife Eve, which it says, mother of all living. Woman of life, mother of life. Interesting that Adam would choose that considering her history. Considering uh, her past actions, he could call her mother of death, mother of the curse, mother of the people who listen to the serpent. But instead, he says, no, I'm believing what God said about you and I'm listening to that. I'm choosing to believe what God says about you rather than what your actions say about you. Rather than what you might even say about yourself. You are going to be the mother of all living. God is going to rescue humanity through you. I'm believing what God said simply because he said it. So he rests in this new identity. He, he gives this new identity to his wife. Say, you are who God says you are. Have you felt the freedom of resting in the identity that God gives for you, that he provides for you? How does it feel? I mean, just try it on for a second. Beloved child, forgiven, beautiful, beloved. These are the words that God speaks over his people. Would you rest in that rather than trying to make a name for yourself? Faith expresses itself in a, in a receiving and a resting upon God. And, and God is very clear about this in Scripture. This rescue, these, these promises, we do not receive them uh, through our good intentions, through our actions, through our resolutions, through our strong feelings. We only connect to them through the instrument of faith. Um, and that instrument of faith it's like the power cord that connects your computer to the wall. Now, I don't know if any of you have uh, Apple products. Some of you probably do. But the, the weird thing about Apple stuff is just about every five years, they change the cord that you're supposed to use with your computer, right? So if you have the old cord, you have to throw it away and you have to get the one that they say you need. And they're very particular about it. And so you get the new cord and you plug it in and you think, I'm so glad this works. But you don't praise the cord. The, the power isn't coming from the cord. You know that. It's just the instrument through which the power comes. But it's very particular, very specific. You can only use the cord they say you can use. And God in His sovereignty and His wisdom has decided to be very particular about how you connect to His saving power through faith alone. Which is to say through nothing good in you, nothing powerful in you, simply by resting and receiving the power that God gives. This is the pattern that God lays out for us. At the very beginning of human history, that God is looking at a people who are stuck in darkness, who are at a dead end, who cannot dig themselves out, and He is saying, I will rescue you. And even though you can't see it, yet, you can begin to experience a little bit of it 
if you would just believe in my word. Believe in what I say. And so God is speaking to us now. In whatever darkness you're in, in whatever part of this curse-stained world that you feel like you're suffering in, and God is saying, I see you. I see you. I hear you. I'm moving toward you with grace. I want to provide for you what you cannot provide for yourself. Would you rest in me? Would you believe and trust in me? I I, I love the hymn, uh, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. It says, all the fitness that God requires, all the ability that he requires is to feel your need of him. So do you feel needy? Are you hungry and thirsty for a righteousness that is not your own? Genesis 3 has good news. God is providing a rescue for people just like you. And he has provided it. Through the life, death, resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And he's asking, would you call out to him? Even like my daughter hiding under the, uh, the kitchen sink the bathroom sink, that you would just say, look here, God. Look here in this seat. Look here in our home. Look here in my office. Look here in this city. God, come here. Seek after us. Find us. Rescue us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you promise to win, that there will be a day when everything bad comes untrue. That you, Lord Jesus, through your perfect life and through your sacrificial death, you have stripped the enemy of all his weapons. Lord, you have robbed him of his power. And Lord, you uh, have conquered and are conquering right now. And you rule and reign over all of human history, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to give us a sense of our needs so that we would cry out to you and ask for rescue. And we do ask, come, Lord Jesus, come. Would you finish what you started, would you make all things new? And would you help us to trust in your word, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Let's stand and sing together, shall we?